You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm here with someone that I think is crucial for all of you to hear from. It is somebody who has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the campuses of North America today, uh, the campuses where we are seeing an eruption of anti-Semitism that is perhaps unprecedented. And because of my own perplexity, I turned to my nephew, uh, Rabbi Ari Koretsky, the head of Maor, Maryland, uh, he is much more than that. He is a leader in campus teaching, learning. People uh, have recognized him throughout the world as someone who has not only been a pace setter in this area, but he's also someone who is understands uh, the quick changing environment and is ready to learn and to work together uh, in order to make a difference. So, Rabbi Ari Koretsky... Uh, how do you read what's going on here? Tell us if anything is happening in the in the school that you're so associated with, the University of Maryland, and what can be done by us, by us uh, adults and people that are sending our children to these schools? Uh, what should be our reaction? First of all, great to be here. Back on principle, and I wish it wasn't uh, under these circumstances, but... Look, college campuses have been a a morass for Jewish students, certainly for Zionist people, for many years. Now, obviously, within that, you know, college campuses there there are probably thousands of college campuses, and certainly hundreds of brand name college campuses around the United States, and not all of them are equal in their uh, mendacity. Let's say it seems that perhaps ironically, perhaps not. That the more prestigious and the more, uh, the university and the more, at least the presumptively intelligent <laughs> students are, the worse it seems to be. And, um, why that is, you know, probably requires uh, some, some real understanding, but that seems to be the case. Where I work at University of Maryland, principally, has not been terrible, thank God. Probably a variety of factors. First of all, it's not, a campus that is generally as politically say, explosive as some of these other campuses, uh, just the nature of the types of students being a state school and so forth. And there's a very, very large Jewish community and a very active, very proud, strong Jewish community and a much smaller, you know, Muslim community, Arab community, although they, they do exist. Of course, there is a students for justice in Palestine. There is movements for BDS that crops up every year or two. And so it's certainly not, you know, like uh, a uh, a chapter of ZOA at, uh, you know, on campus, but it's much less combustible than some of these other terrible, terrible environments. But I'm following those places closely. My very close, you know, colleagues work there and um, I just read about it with a lot of interest. And uh, it's, it's really frightening. We saw this past week, students barricaded it. Library at Cooper Union. Just Shabbos morning, I was walking outside Shul and I bumped into a friend of mine whose daughter goes to Cooper Union and she was one of the 10 or 15 young Jews who were in that library at the, at that time. And he was telling me about how frightened they were. Tulane is a school that I have a lot of feeling for because 
my father grew up in New Orleans and, uh, I, my cousin worked there until very recently. I have a lot of family history there and watching the images from the street right outside Tulane where Jews were basically assaulted for trying to prevent the Israeli flag from being burned, you know, has, has, has made the rounds on, on social media. So it's, it's quite frightening what's going on. Can I just add also the, the sort of tepid responses from the administrators and from the heads of these universities is also quite troubling. You know, it's, it's so weaselly, you know, instead of the type of strident statements that were made in light of the George Floyd killing and other things, these campus, you know, know-it-alls, the ones who are supposed to run the school, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, the types of responses they're saying. And, and therefore it's almost like they are acquiescing and agreeing to, to the pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas, uh, voice it, instead of condemning and saying, you know, we are going to uproot this and we're going to bring in the campus police. I think that makes it even doubly troubling. It's one thing to say, uh, that there is an infection of, 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 of the pro-Palestinian Arab culture. It's another thing to say that uh, everybody is happy about it, and that is really what this campus is perhaps meant uh, to ferment. You know, you, you mentioned that you know that your 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 school, University of Maryland, which you have done so much for, is not as politically combustible, and there isn't that much. Uh, it's not like these other schools. Are you sure that the troublemakers, or let's call them that, or the the, the protesters from these schools, they're all indigenous to the school itself? Or is it possible that there is some sort of other network, you know, that is sending quote unquote students and people into these places just in order to rabble rouse because they happen to be in, in, in such a prestigious area? Yeah, it's definitely possible. And obviously urban campuses are going to be more prone to that kind of infiltration, so to speak. At Tulane, for example, it seems that the perpetrators were not even necessarily students like you're noting. Um, and that's probably happening in some places, but there's no question that college students themselves have been infected to a really troubling degree. I don't know if you saw the clip going around with this professor who's actually Jewish, scandalously. He was UMass and Amherst, I'm pretty sure. Um, and she's arguing with, you know, a pro-Israel student who's trying to, you know, just get her to say Hamas or terrorist, yes or no, yes or no. And she just won't answer the question. She talks about, about, about all that context, you know, and, you know, well, if you start the clock at October 7th, you get one perspective. But if you start the clock at a different time, you'll have a different perspective. Right, which is really basically the same thing that the Secretary General of the UN right. said originally, that we cannot look at this in a vacuum. And, and this, of course, is the whole, you know, to use a, a cinematic term, you know, if you have a long shot, oh, it's much different. You know, from the long shot, it isn't just beheading and raping and burning and, and and destruction. It's really, we have to look at, you know, the root causes and of course the root causes go back. And I think this really feeds into something that, you know, I'm very happy uh, that uh, the Wall Street Journal and the commentary podcast have pointed out that a book that I really wasn't so familiar with, despite the fact that I thought I had my ear to the ground, uh, Richard Fanon's book of the Wretched of the Earth, which is supposedly a quote-unquote classic, which really advocates and sets out a path for political uh, aggression towards colonizers, political aggression towards those that have put others down, the ones that have, have taken over another person's country, and 
what Hanan writes about is how this violence is the only weapon that they have, and they have to relish it and actually take a, a sense of pride in it, because the violence is really not just the violence against that specific victim, but it's really a strike against the whole colonialist, imperialist uh, crushing of society that we're all guilty of. In other words, even those that are not the original colonialists, the ones that are born in, for example, the second and third generation Afrikaners in South Africa and other places, they're all colonialists. They're all part of it. And that's, as you know, I'm not telling you anything new, but that has been sort of like the justification for these actions. And that is why uh, they are seeing October 7th as part of that. And and it's really troubling because... Uh, it, it, that's really behind a lot of these statements, like what you're saying. I, I, I'm just wondering how do how do we respond to that? I'm sure the people that are in in the schools that you your colleagues are, are you guys thinking about how to respond? Can response work, or 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 is is the campus idea room so saturated with such evil that it's impossible to even speak to them and and, and for our Jewish students to even make a difference and make a dent? Yeah, I think, look, it's a maddening, uh, landscape, just, you know, just in terms of the objective experience. It's so ahistorical. It's so historically illiterate. It's so ignorant on every level. It's also so counterproductive to these causes. I mean, we all know so clearly, intuitively, what everyone, you know, at least on the, uh, you know, the pro-Israel side has been saying forever, which is that if we, if they laid down their weapons, they'd be peace. If we laid down, our weapons, there'd be, you know, no more Israel. So it's so clear that they're eroding their own cause, unless the cause is literally to wipe Israel off the map. And it's not about peace. It's not about statehood, which is quite clearly, it's a genocidal movement. It's not a constructive movement. It's a entirely a destructive movement. Look, you're not, we're not going to convince or convert those who are died in the wool, Hamasniks or pro, you know, sympathizers. I mean, it's going to be, very, very few and far between that you're going to find a real, a real listening ear. I think it's much more about that large middle. Most students just don't know anything and they just hear these very, you know, uh, emotionally saturated claims by Palestinians saying, Oh, babies are being killed, hospitals being bombed. You know, and th- th- these are master manipulators and they're masters of the, the art of, uh, much like the Nazis and much like, uh, Stalinists, I mean, they're masters of, you know, manipulating the, uh, the emotional tenor of a conversation so that, you know, everything's about body counts. Everything's about the strong and the powerful, you know, oppressing the weak and the powerless. And, um, that's a very quickly, uh, adopted narrative on campus. It's, it finds a very, a very ripe audience. And so, you know, I, I think with those kinds of students, you need to be able to ask rhetorical questions strong rhetorical questions and informational, you know, informationally illuminating kinds of questions. If you're, if you're speaking to people in the middle, things like, Hey, are you aware of how many, how many students do Jewish, uh, how many Jews do you think uh, live in Gaza? And let them take a guess. How many Jews do you think live in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Let them, let them think about these things. You know, what do you think it's like to be a gay person in, in, uh, in Gaza right now? You know, I've probably seen the memes going around of, you know, the queers for Palestine versus queers in Palestine. 
you know, and the, the right. rather bloody difference. So most people just don't know anything. They just literally don't know any better. They just hear about body counts. Being able to ask just sort of basic questions that an, an average thinking person who doesn't have skin in the game can, can actually respond to as a human being. These other people are just, I'm sorry, they've, they've basically surrendered their humanity at this point. Those were so doctrinaire and so invested in the Palestinian narrative. It, it's just, there's nothing to talk about these people. They are supporters and enablers of terrorists. And in my, in my opinion, they're basically, you know, one step, you know, below, uh, in terms of their moral substance. And they're just, uh, they're, they're just about as evil and you're not going to get through to them. One of the things that Dennis Prager said to Megan Kelly, uh, a couple of days ago on her podcast was that this is really a piece, not just of, you know, BDS or anti-Israel, but uh, he believes it's part of the whole, uh, you know, anti-biblical nature of, of everything on campus. The rejection, of course, of the idea of a binary of sexual roles for men and women, uh, the, the militancy uh, towards everything that ever touches on anything about race, everything about intersectionality. In other words, they have made the Palestinian cause and the casting Israel as the ultimate Lothario as all part of Western cultures, racism, uh, inherent racism, the, the anti, you know, hatred of LGBTQ persons. And, and, and therefore you have situations like the queers for Palestine. So even if we are somehow able uh, to get them to disassociate uh, the, the actual Hamas versus Israel, it's really part of a whole mentality. And, and that mentality is so, has been for years been cemented, you know, into the bulwark of so many of these universities. It's like you say, it's going to fall on deaf ears. I have to, I mean, I have to say like, it's, I've been telling people lately that I feel like this situation that we've been experiencing is probably the most pronounced expression of gaslighting that I've ever encountered in my life. Essentially everything on campus and in these sort of broader, you know, concentric circles of campus-like thinking, everything that's said about the conflict essentially is the exact inverse of what the reality is, right? So we talk about like, you know, marginalized peoples and you talk about, you know, they talk about, oh, there has to be nuance and you have to think with nuance and, you know, context and nuance. Everything that they think about the conflict is the opposite of nuance. In other words, the nuance would say, Hey, this particular conflict, while it may ostensibly look like it fits into a certain paradigm that you have of oppressed versus oppressor, actually, if you dig one layer beneath, it's, it's not that at all, right? It, it's, it's really the opposite of that. Where's your nuance? You don't have any nuance to be able to disassociate that. You are aligning yourself with fascistic totalitarian regimes that are fundamentally opposed in every with every fiber of their being to every shred of liberal, uh, of liberalism and of liberal thought that you stand for. And yet you are promoting and, and taking up their mantle. It's like, where is your nuance? Where is your understanding? Where's any ability to think critically? It's, it's a total erasure of any normal, you know, sophisticated thought at all. But again, the gaslighting is so severe that it, it completely inverts reality. And that's why Jewish students feel like is totally like they're in this kind of like this this funny room this 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 warp of like where am i like just reality is completely subverted 
you know, you talk about being able to ask people to think a little bit deeper. All they really need to do is hear what Hamas is saying in Arabic and to, you know, be aware of the Hamas charter. And, and all these things really don't take much. And, and yet, if, if you even begin to mention any of this, the fact that, you know, the, the tremendous accolades that are afforded to these murderers, uh, what they are saying, uh, how this is uh, the, the eradication of, of, of a people, it, 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 it's like water off of a duck. It doesn't register at all. And because I think it's, again, part they, they have allowed it to be absorbed into a, 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 a basic narrative of the oppressed. And, and therefore, it doesn't really make a difference what you say. And, as, and, and you're right, it's maddening and it's heartbreaking that so many liberal American Jews who are finding themselves on campus, who have been sent there, who have really been, well, let's say even better, Ari, ever since they were probably in second or third grade, their parents have been priming them to, for this experience in order for them to, to really make it, uh, to achieve and to be granted, whether it's an Ivy League school or not, this is what they have been waiting for their whole lives. And now when their other identity, their identity as, as Jews is now really being shaken to the core, the fact that, that, that so many of them, as you say, are saying, I, you know, let's go for a ceasefire. Uh, we hate, we, we condemn the killings on both sides, it, it, not realizing that these sort of, you know, liberal statements are really undermining, uh, in so many ways, uh, the, the cause of justice. I remember when I was a teacher in the Ida Crown High School, which, of course, you're familiar with. Uh, and at that point, which was many years ago, we tried to do something in our high schools to indoctrinate or at least to provide some sort of balance of where they were going. So I, I think... Again, the Jewish schools, I think it's, it's easy, uh, to, to sort of perhaps give them what they need to fortify them for the, for the college environment. For the kids who've been going to public school, then that's much harder, but, but maybe we could begin even in those, those high schools, like I'm talking about, to try to create right now, because they're gonna, they're, eventually they're gonna end up in the, in this, in this college environment. This crisis will pass. Sounds the Mashiach coming. There's going to be other crises to come. Uh, do you guys uh, think about this, about uh, extending your work into these high schools to get them ready for the college experience? I, I, I mean, extending it to high schools would be an entirely other enterprise. It, it, I mean, we're talking about thousands of high schools across the country. Like you said, Jewish schools are, are, are already going to be much more efficient at doing this. They have the captive audience. They have the kids that are, you know, marinating, so to speak, in the pro-Israel environment. I mean, you talk about just public schools around the country. It's, I mean, you have JSUs, so the NCSY public school clubs, and hopefully they're doing that kind of work. Our hands are more than full just dealing with even a fraction of the Jewish community, which is really, I think, our approach in general. You know, like I said before, we're not going to convince, we're not going to convert those who are died in the wall anti-Zionist, died in the wall pro-Palestinian numbskulls, basically. But we can do two things. Number one is we can provide information and resources for those that are in the middle that want to learn, that want to know. Um, and I think, but most importantly, our most important function is to spread light and spread positive experiences for the Jewish students. They're the ones who, who need it. They're the ones who want it. They're the ones who can really impact and inspire, particularly at this moment. They're looking for 
instructive kinds of outlets. They're looking for, you know, spiritually productive things they could do, materially productive ways to get involved. And that's really our, our number one target and mission. We're, we have to, I think sometimes we have to recognize our limitations. It's a little bit humbling. You know, I, I'm a big believer that mission creep is real. And to the extent that a person tries to solve all the world's problems, you actually don't solve the problems you really can solve. So if I, if I somehow believe myself to be this, you know, messianic figure when it comes to transforming the campus landscape, either locally or nationally, right? Then not only will I fail in that mission because I'm literally battling against an entire cultural milieu, I'll also then fail in my primary mission of inspiring the students that I do actually have a chance to, uh, to uplift and to educate and to uh, empower with resources, with education and spiritually fortified. So uh, it's really, it's, it's not a zero sum game. You know, it's, it's, it's choosing one side or the other. And by focusing on what we can actually do, ultimately that trickles down and has a broader impact on the campus environment. But most importantly, it builds young people, which then translates into building Jewish families and building generations of educated and confident Jews. And that's ultimately the the only real bulwark we have against anti-Semitism and uh, hatred of Israel, um, at least that I know of, to be uh, effective from where I sit. Well, yeah, again, let, let me just note to our listeners who aren't familiar that, you know, in the in the years that you have been involved in in campus life in Maryland, uh, there have been hundreds of, of students who have have now. Uh, are living a much more religious and committed life. And as you said, have produced families. Thank God we have impacted a lot of people or helped a lot of people make great choices, you know, of their own volition, which it's always their own choices to make those choices to increase their affiliation, their observance, their connection. And to me, that's again, the, the greatest possible antidote, the greatest possible, you know, manner of of battling and those are the people that are ultimately going to really take up the mantle of uh, you know of jewish beliefs and of, of supporting israel you know again both uh spiritually morally and uh, and often even by moving there or by living there or spending significant amounts of time there and really taking up that cause those are the ones that are going to do it and and you, there's no shortcuts to doing that you know sound you know the sound bites and uh debates on the campus quad do only so much and, and it's really not that much. Um, deep, passionate, uh, life-changing work is, is what, you know, brings adherence to the cause and, um, and spreads light across the generations. Yeah. I mean, well said, but unfortunately, since we're dealing with a, this sort of like this conflagration that is, uh, constantly in our faces, it's almost like if we don't to some sort of response, even from where you're sitting, you sort of appear like you're ignoring the major issue of the day. And I, and I'm sure that's that, that putting more of a burden upon you to not just continue the wonderful work you're doing on, on the grassroots level, but also to have to do something. Of course, you're saying it's, it's not necessarily rearing its head as much, but it definitely might. And it might happen very soon. Kids who are raised as proud white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Kids who believe in uh, the biblical story, even if it includes Jesus and his disciples, I would assume that they are, as they have been, our natural allies. Because 
ultimately, if you do see things from a geopolitical stance, a case can be made that the that even the first Aliyah of the 1880s were interlopers into a into a land that they had abandoned and was lived on uh, by another people. The only real, as we say, the case for Eretz Israel really has to be tied to the biblical truth, the biblical truth that was dealt with in these Torah readings that we've had the last last week and now in this coming week about how essential this land is to our connection to God, and God gives us this land. And therefore, forget about the the messianic implications of why the Christians have been so helpful in the past, but their voices and, and are, are, are important. Is it possible, you know, that at least even in this period, we can bring in some of our Christian friends to show solidarity, to talk about how Israel is connected to the Jewish people and how we are with you and that we understand that this is not a question of soil, but this is a question of soul, a question of who, that this is God's people who are there. Do you think working with them now and having even Jewish kids who are on the fence hear from so many Christians uh, that that'll make a difference or, or, or has their voice also been neutralized as uh, sort of like obscurantists? A really interesting point. I haven't thought a lot about the Christians. Uh, I think that could be an interesting uh, angle because I do think they're probably a lot more open to it. And I, I would answer that in the context of I want to just kind of clarify something that you know we said right before this, which is that I'm in no way suggesting that we don't that we go on business as usual and don't deal with these you know with these issues. I, I would say 90 percent plus of what we're talking about right now is Israel and the situation and, and constantly referring back to it. The question to me is. Do we do that in the context of standing outside on the campus, you know, grounds on the campus green, debating with, you know, Palestinian activists and standing out there with signs? And, and I realized that ultimately that would really detract from what I could be doing, which is running programs for Jewish students. I'm launching a new Israel fellowship for freshmen starting this week. We're trying to get hundreds of, of young people educated and inspired. And in turn, that will allow them to go out and impact their classmates, their roommates, their dorm mates, you know, the people on their intramural sports teams more confidently and more, you know, more efficiently, effectively to have that impact on those, that, that large, vast, you know, sort of middle ground of people. So I want to be very clear about that. Whether bringing in Christian groups is a, is a strategy that could be impactful. I think it probably could be. You want to build coalitions. You want to build allyship. I think that's important. Uh, there have been statements of support that have come out for Israel you know, from the president's office, there was a very strong statement that came out recently from the student government at Maryland, which was excellent. Again, in Maryland is very Jewish. So, you know, the immediate past president of the student government is actually an Orthodox Jewish girl. The president of the student government currently is a Catholic girl who came and spoke at our major vigil the night after the attacks. So there, there's no question that those, uh, those allyships are important. I just, again, think we need to, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing, which is that you know, at the end of the day, we can, you know, like we always say, we can clean up our own, you know, our own soul, our own soil, so to speak, and our own soul, and then work out in concentric circles rather than the opposite way. Uh, and again, you also always have to know your lane, know your position. I'm not a political uh, activist. When I see things that, that, that incense me, I forward it on. I'm friendly just through my work with people, you know, someone who's a federal judge, someone who is one of the, you know, past president of APAC, 
And I, I forwarded in this, this story right away. Then, you know, you go do what you can do, uh, because you have to know who, who can, you know, achieve things in the, in those, uh, in those circles. And then who's, uh, better left to singing and dancing and educating students. Obviously you, you have to work within your strengths and you have to realize, as you say, you can't have uh, aspirations that really undermine the, your fundamental thrust of everything you're doing. But when information comes to you, pass it on, uh, do what you can and, you know, think deeply into your social contacts. The younger you are, the more intense probably and the more interconnected you are. And if you do care deeply about this, okay. It's maybe you're not the most eloquent person, but pass it on. And it's possible that through this uh, interconnectivity, uh, we're going to be able to have the, the right type of response. Well, let me just tell you two things on the idea of the Christian. Uh, you know, one of the just one of the things that you and I have discussed is the effectiveness of speakers and people making points to a audience that is basically unable to concentrate. We, we realize we didn't grow, you didn't grow up with an iPhone, but many of the young people who are now starting to go to college really don't have the ability to even listen probably to this whole podcast without probably tuning out to doing four or five different things. The attention spans are, 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 are so thin that the sound bites that you mentioned about and just the statements, the proclamations are enough to sort of say, well, this is the way I'm thinking about things. So we have to realize uh, the limitations uh, that are so you know, entrenched in our society. And definitely these our, our students have that as well. But when something has a panache or something different about it, you take note. I think in the same way, when we are able in short bursts to bring in a Christian, to bring in someone who you don't expect, to bring in uh, somebody like that, I think it, it, it can be effective when we hear somebody who's already prejudiced towards a certain mindset. We, when we hear him, yeah, of course he's going to say that. That's, that's, that's what he's been programmed to say, no matter how brilliant he's saying it. But when we have somebody from, from the outside, we don't expect somehow that convinces us even more. And I think there's nothing a Jew loves more than an endorsement from a guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like, can you believe it? And, and I think that's really, you know, w- to win the hearts and minds of people, we have to really be inventive in, in that way. Uh, I, I give a pat on the back to the Israelis who took a, a week, took a couple of weeks to produce what I heard was from a number of different reporters that I read a 43 minute video compilation of the horror and, and and even Peggy Noonan who a week earlier in the Wall Street Journal was was all about cease firing and all about Israel don't go in and, and others uh from Reuters and others when they were confronted with the the reality not just I heard about it and one image but the, putting it together in a way that was true and and and, and powerful it really started to turn the tide for many. So we've got to be as savvy as, as the enemy and we have to be inventive and thoughtful. And um, absolutely. We have to understand all the way that we're, we are battling the world's oldest hatred, the world's oldest bias. And if, if you know, Jews are constantly frustrated by, you know, the, the lack of impact that our Hasbara efforts 
often have and, and how things seem to fall on deaf ears in many cases. Number one, I think we should be heartened by the, the examples, if they're rare or not, of, uh, you know, of successes. You look at what John Kirby, the spokesman, you know, White House spokesperson said recently, I thought it was unbelievable how strong he came out, you know, and, and fought back against sort of really ignorant, uh, press questioning. And they saw the Czech, you know, UN ambassador or the Czech uh, prime minister say we might exit the United Nations, which is an incredible statement of, of uh, moral clarity over the United Nations. Something even Israel doesn't say, <laughs> you know, over the, over the, of the UN's just total, uh, you know, moral equivalency and, and, and equivocation and so forth. So things like that are heartening. A and B recognize what we're up against. We are up against the decks. The, you know, the deck is stacked. You know, mightily against us. It's designed that way. And I think here you need a spiritual, a spiritual theological lens to understand that there is this, you know, deck stacked against us. It's pro- the world is programmed or conditioned to be that way. And we have to understand what that means from a theological perspective. And we've seen here that the unity and the interconnectivity of the Jewish people is our greatest weapon. And whether we're using that for political advocacy or for sending letters to soldiers or baking cookies or doing anything we possibly can, that really is ultimately our saving grace as a nation. It's what, sadly, I feel not to ascribe, you know, causes, but it certainly was a, a cancer in our national soul leading up to this horrible cataclysm. And it's 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 the salve that we're all experiencing right now, I hope, and, and contributing towards. And may that only continue in the weeks and months to come. Well, again, you, you sort of gave me a little opening here as in my rabbinical position. So I'll just add the following. Whether it can be genealogically uh, ascertained or not, we know that we are dealing with the children of Ishmael. And it would seem from all the medieval rabbinical commentators that they have all uh, said clearly that the rise of Islam, the power of Islam, it's all really tethered to verses in the Bible, verses in the Torah that indicate who Yishmael was and Yishmael's power and strength. Um, all the, the, the terms that we had in last week's parsha, and then we'll have later in this week's parsha coming up, but Rova Koshes, it all is so starkly clear to us. But as we see the power of Yishmael, the fact that God listens, the fact that, of, of, that Elohim was Imai, all these things which sort of are in a way an answer to how this is ha- able to happen, that, that, that the Ishmael has a role and somehow the struggle between Abraham, Yitzchak, Yishmael, Hogar, Sora, how it's all really still is so primal. I think one of the things that we need to emphasize is that the power of Yishmael, as Rechaim Falevit says, was it was to pervert the incredible gifts that Avram Avinu bestowed, that Avram Avinu asked for, that were maybe even genetically in Yishmael. The fact that he has a, a, a way for God to respond, the fact that if he wanted to, he could have been, and he was at the end of his life, but even for the for m- the majority of his life, he could have been an incredible beacon of of, of what it means to be a great servant of God. But instead, as Rav Chaim Shlevin says, he took those energies in another way and he became monstrous. It was, it, it was monstrous, despite the fact that God promises that this will be a, a, a nation that will spread across the world in tremendous numbers. But if the idea is correct that we take as the 
Kabbalists say, the psalmist of Avram is the power of Yishmael. The idea of the, the loving kindness, the chesed of Avram, that was somehow perverted into this 70 virgins, uh, aggressiveness, creation, take over everything, absorb, then what we can do, I believe, is realize what has been given to us, which is in our DNA, is the great chesed of Avram. And that is what you're saying, the the unity. Yes, it's not only an intellectual unity, and now the people that were on the left are saying, yes, let's support, but they have opened up their hearts, their pocketbooks, their their minds to to do chesed in ways that are off the charts, ways that I, I think even are, surpass what has been done in our history. Avram's mita of chesed, this mita of Avram that Yishmol has perverted, we can hold fast to it. Maybe that is what we are seeing. And if we continue in that way, in so many fashions, giving our time, effort, mind, as Rav Yoshev says, giving time is the ultimate chesed in terms of listening, being involved, and coming up with ways to support then I think we are, as you say, we are indeed fighting Yishmo in the greatest possible way. Ari, thanks so much for giving us this time. You know that we're going to be in touch because, you know, Ari and I, <laughs> Ari and I aren't just, you know, he's not just someone I interview, but Ari and I uh, talk frequently about uh, everything that's on both of our platforms. Uh, we'll see everybody. Take care. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, Please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.